0: too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy30. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. This is me, Dave, your host, and I am happy to introduce you to a friend who has himself been through a decent amount of change in career and life and now finds himself pursuing passion in placing information, uh, school, as it were, in unconventional ways in the hands of business owners. His name is Jeff Lerner. In 2008, November-ish sort of time, uh, the Great Recession was upon us, and he found himself uh, at a rock-bottom place in his life. He was a former professional piano player, and as he was nursing an injured wrist, evicted from an apartment, being divorced by his wife, struggling with depression, owing creditors about a half million bucks, he needed to find something new. And if you fast forward now, Jeff is a three-time Inc. 5000 CEO with over $100 million in sales to his name, who's also happily remarried with four beautiful children and living in many, many ways a dream life. So uh, in 2019, a decade into the turning around of his life, he founded something called Entree Institute, and it is the world's first institute of higher learning for entrepreneurs, which is now one of the fastest growing education technology companies in the world. He splits his time between running Entre Institute and appearing in media, hoping to inspire others with his remarkable turnaround story. I hope that you will be inspired today by his words. Please welcome to the Rise Together podcast, Mr. Jeff Lerner. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community, and when we raise each other up, we all rise together.
2: (music) Jeff, hello. Hey, Dave. So glad to be here. Thank you. For that uh, that introduction, I'm listening to it. And I'm like, I don't know who he's talking about, but that's they you, brother. Very, they, they sound very blessed, and um, <laughs> I want to know how they did that. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so I so I've
1: given just like Tops of the Trees a little bit of your story, but in your own words. If uh, you were at a cocktail party and someone asked you to describe what you do or why you believe that you're on the planet, what is the story that you would tell?
2: <laughs> well, I will say this: I, I've never been I've never been very good at cocktail parties. Cause I'm the guy that somebody says, Oh, how's it going? You know, or what, what's, what's the latest. And, you know, they're looking for superficial chit chat. And I immediately go like Mariana Trench, 30,000 feet down. We're getting into the plumbing of, of the philosophical underpinnings of the universe. And they're like, bro, I just, I was just making small talk. Like yeah. I'm going to go over there now. So <laughs> I love, I love your, your context for the answer. So I'm going to give you the way I would answer right before they kick me out of the cocktail party. I basically grew up uh, feeling like a, a square peg in a round hole world. I, I was born with a genetic, I'm going to call it a gift. Uh, I think the clinical term is disorder, but uh, it's called Wardenburg syndrome. And it doesn't really change your life. It can make you deaf, which I think is a real hardship. I, I'm blessed not to, not to have that affectation, but um, it kind of just makes you look different. And that's, that's cool now, like whatever, everybody's, when you're an adult, it's like everybody's different. But when you're a kid, n- you know, that, that sameness is currency, right? And when you're the kid that looks different, um, and then couple that with being the kid that kind of acts a little different too, and is kind of like nerdy and cerebral, like I just had a really hard go. And I grew up feeling like, almost like kind of like, in a much less cool less sexy way like neo in the matrix like i'm looking at a world and it's not quite making sense like i can tell there's some programs running here that are not uh, organic and healthy right and and i think a lot of it came from that experience of having been bullied and having been forced to to make peace with my differentness yeah yeah And 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 that that ended up becoming I think a a superpower of like I I don't see things the way the world the the way the rest of the world is and so all through my childhood I was always I I kind of felt like I was always fighting the system right like when um, you know Public Enemy put out Fight the Power I was like that's me right I I just I I don't get the the Matrix code and and so at 16 it all came to a head and I actually got expelled from my school that my high school that I was in. And I ended up transferring to another school. And it was just one thing after another. And I wasn't fitting in. And I was just like, I'm out. I'm done. Trying to fit in isn't making me happy. So I might as well just go be happy. And I convinced my parents to let me drop out of school. And I said, look, you guys were prepared to pay for me, pay for my life until I was 18. So I've still got two years left. So instead of forcing me to be in this you know job training program they call high school knowing full well that i have i do not seek i do not desire career employment let me fi- let me let me go my own way and all by the way all i need is a piano i'm going to teach myself music and i'm going to become a professional pianist that was my my brilliant master plan and uh i knew that i had some aptitude because i played guitar when i was younger and they did they went for it um they said okay you got a couple years Here's a piano. We wish you the best. And I practiced like a maniac 12, 14 hours a day, all night, every night, sleeping in the daytime, like whatever I, you know, and and literally to the point where years later, I developed arthritis in my wrist. That's why I had that injured wrist because I played, I just played too much. But it took a couple of years and I was able to start getting gigs. And all through my 20s, I ended up building a really, really nice career as a working pianist in Houston, Texas. And what was cool, uh, what, what really changed the course of my life uh, other than just, you know, I learned a couple things from that one. If you work really, really hard, you can do, a you can, you can succeed at a really hard thing. Even when everyone around you is telling you that you can't and that you're crazy because everybody yeah. told me it was insane to want to be a professional piano player, even though I had just started when I was almost 17 years old. So good. Uh, but I also learned that, uh, well, I, I was able to get a bunch of gigs. I got in with this one booking agency that actually started booking me in the homes of like billionaires. And so I was doing private parties at the at the home, like for dinner parties for like James Baker, former secretary of state. I played gigs for Tillman Fertita, the owner of the Rockets and Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros. And I played multiple functions for the Houston Texans organization for Bob McNair, the billionaire owner of the football team. And like I'm in these people's houses. It's like me and like 20 other friends. So I'm surrounded by like centimillionaires and then the little $40,000 a year piano player in the corner. And I actually got to talk to some of these people and I kind of got to know some of them because it's kind of intimate. They're like inviting you into their home to play on their $300,000 piano that's worth more than your whole life. And uh I would talk to them and I almost kind of got like lightly mentored by all these wildly successful people in whose homes I got to play. And I just developed this, this passion for entrepreneurship because I looked at them and I was like, wait a minute, they have the best of both worlds. They have the freedom and the autonomy that I was seeking, but they also have the money and the quality of life to have way more choices in this world. And frankly, way more ability to do you know, good or make an impact. I mean, I, I was younger then. I wasn't necessarily as altruistic. Now I look at it, it's like, think, look at all the good they could do. I would play. I would play galas where they would raise like two million dollars to, you know, research a cure to care for cancer. I couldn't do that. I was a broke musician. I didn't have two dollars to go buy Taco Bell, right? And so I just got obsessed with with entrepreneurship, and I started trying to start businesses. And it all kind of came to a head in my late twenties. I was twenty nine years old, two thousand eight, when it finally the other shoe dropped. I was on the hook. I had taken out some SBA loans, like you mentioned. It was the Great Recession. I was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I was a broke piano player. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I went on the internet, like Googling in the middle of the night, like, how can a broke person make some money or, you know, whatever. (laughs) And I discovered this world that was emerging at that time, about 10, 15 years ago, the world of digital marketing, the digital economy. And I started learning uh, a lot of the same skills that digital marketers are learning now. It was just the earlier version, the 1.0 version of that. And I I was a quick study. I've always been good at a keyboard, you know, computer or or musical, whatever. And within 18 months, I paid off that $495,000 in debt. And uh, that was, I guess I got out of debt early 2010. And so then that's been what, about 12 years. I've just been stacking wins in the modern economy. And finally, in 2018, I sold a digital agency and I was 39 and I was basically ready to retire. And I was like, OK, I'm 39 years old. I'm ready to retire. Ten years ago, I was broke, literally homeless, living in my ex-wife's parents' house. This story probably warrants a little more like I should go tell somebody this story. Right. It's, it's like maybe my calling in life isn't just to get to 39 and retire and, and go fishing like I could do something with this. And so I started sharing with the world what I had done in the last 10 years and how I did it and the opportunities of the modern digital economy. And one thing led to another and somebody hit me up and said, hey, do you have a course? And so I made a course, took two weeks, made a course. That course has now sold 230,000 copies and given rise to one of the fastest growing education platforms in the world, where we basically teach entrepreneurship in in the modern world.
1: Amazing. All right. One thing you said earlier on is the turn for you of uh, making peace with your differences. I think there's something so powerful. Like I'm in a like in a season, a while now of just like uh, radically accepting me for who I am, but also like not even like demonizing the differences, but maybe even celebrating them as part of what makes me, specifically me, the superpower that I have or the unfair advantage that I possess, like it, it sometimes lives inside of some of those differences. I love the fact that you did that. The idea that if anyone can make peace with their differences, it probably uh, almost immediately brings you freedom, which is the thing that you want most of all. I do think too, there's something about, you know, when you were finally stepping into this version of who you were that was different and, you know, outside of the, traditional lines of what maybe most would have considered the right path at 16, you fell into passion and like, you know, were able to demonstrate this idea of mastery as a thing that you can build with work and time. And you did that. Mm-hmm. And you still had then a, a left turn or right turn thrown your way when piano wasn't going to be a thing that you could continue to do. And um, it was because of this proximity that you had, to these people who, in their homes you were playing in, that uh, Mm -hmm. you, in some ways, I think, were mentored, but in other ways, I'm going to argue, were inspired.
2: That's, I mean, I I would take a very little bit of time and attention they would give me, and I would turn it into a whole inspirational lesson, but it might have literally been four words. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, though, it's like, I, we... Heidi and I did this uh, conference last week. It was I mean, Heidi running the stinking show, but there was this moment where she read something out of this kid's book called um, Hope for the Flowers. And it's a kid's book, but it has a like a grown up message. And it was just the story of these caterpillars that um, were afraid of what change would look like because none of them had ever seen a butterfly. And then one of them ends up seeing a butterfly and it gives them then this courage to believe in their ability to become the thing that Mm. they've always been. And I think that there's something in the experience of proximity that is just this reminder that if you aren't in life with, if you aren't putting yourself in environments where you're surrounded by people who already can fly, you might not ever come to appreciate that that's what you're here for. And so I think there's something really beautiful about that.
2: Yeah. I think that when I look back on that time and, you know, I just finished writing a lot of this in a book, so it's very fresh and I've done a lot of really deep exploration of, of that time in my life. When I look back on that time, I realize the proximity was the opportunity. Right. But at the same time, you know, I was in a circle of a few hundred musicians that, you know, we, I played between three and 400 gigs a year. So like I was, I was playing a lot of gigs, right. with, And there were basically maybe five hundred musicians, maybe a thousand in the city of Houston that were at the level. You know, you had you had drummers, you had bass players, you had pianists, you had guitarists, and you had vocalists, and maybe a couple horn players that like did most of these society gigs, right? And so we all knew each other. We were all constantly in this kind of small, close knit world. And they were all in the same gigs that I was. They were all in the same proximity that I was. But I was the person who on breaks instead of wanting to go outside and smoke cigarettes with the other musicians, or instead of wanting to go hang out in the safe, comfortable, shadowy places with the the catering crew and the bar staff. And and I'm not, I'm not denigrating those people. I was like in the room, I was like mingling. I was like on the edge of like, even being inappropriate going, Hey, I know I'm just the piano player, but like, would you mind, do you have any tips for a young hungry person that's just trying to make it in a world that seems kind of crazy? Like clearly you've done well for yourself. Is there, and I would I would pretty boldly go in there. And I look back at that time and I realize my life experience of never having successfully assimilated into a group of like people. The fact that that had never worked for me, it had never been rewarding or gratifying for me. It meant that there was no magnetism in those situations pulling me outside to be like, oh, you're a musician. And on the breaks, the musicians go outside and hang out with the other musicians. I had never fit in before. So I wasn't going to start trying then. So I'm like, I'm here. I'm going to go to the people that have the lives that I would want to have. And I'm going to try to get to know them. And, And there were musicians that resented me. They would actually say, why do you think you're better than us? Why are you trying so hard? Why are you, you know, and, and they would grumble. It was almost like they were they were a little bit um challenged by the fact that I was more interested in sometimes not always, but sometimes being in the room than being, you know, back in the driveway with them behind the house or that they actually had like servants' quarters. I mean, these houses, it was like Downton Abbey, right? And uh and so I look back and I'm like, man, I got the gold because I was in the hills and I dug for the gold. Yeah. know and i think that's the lesson is like there's a lot of people that find themselves in proximity to opportunity but you actually have to put yourself out there to go dig for it
1: wow i love that like part of the 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 benefit of not having fit in as it were was permission to not care about fitting in in a situation where there was opportunity on the table ooh that's a good one all right so there's obviously this like stretch of time from 2008 to 2019 Talk a little bit about that transition period from
2: pianist
1: to entrepreneur.
2: Sure. So so bear in mind, in 2008, I was having my 11th failed venture. Wow. So it wasn't like, oh, in 2008, I just decided to become an entrepreneur. No, I mean, I, I, I had actually started, tried to start my first thing right when I dropped out of high school when I was 16. I took a little bit of money that my parents had set aside for college, and since I had at that point, I didn't actually think I was going to go to college because I like I'm a high school dropout. Clearly, college isn't in my future. Um, I took that money and I hired a, the, my the networking IT guy at my dad's office who who claimed to be a computer programmer and he was going to build me this website that did some magic trick in like 1990 was that 95 I think. Wow! <laughs> and um, you know that was back when I had a dial up internet that was like, you know, and um, so anyway, I had this. It, and there, sometimes a few years would go by because I would need to save up another ten grand to go try the next thing or whatever because I was literally living off tip money. Yeah. But uh, but I had eleven consecutive failures, and if somebody wants to know about all eleven, they can read my book. But it was that was number eleven, right? And so uh, if is there a saying that twelfth time is the charm? There probably isn't, but I'm going to coin it because and and the, and the the last failure was the big one, right? That was the half a million dollars in debt. So 2008, I uh, I launched this affiliate marketing business. I you know built a blog, started making some YouTube videos, started writing. It was different back then. You would publish what are called eZine articles, like ezines or magazines, but electronic magazines, eZine articles. Just a whole different world back then. Uh, there were like you would create these things called Squidoo lenses, which is like Seth Godin uh, created this platform called Squidoo in like 2006. And so I was doing all this you know, internet nerdy marketing stuff. And I I just had a knack for it. And so that was my first win. And I did that for like five years. I kind of escalated from one offer to the next where I would go to a company that had a product or service but they needed customers. And I knew how to go create content that would acquire customers and they would pay me commissions, right? So for five years, I did that. And uh, had a, that was a total turnaround for my life. You know, by, by the end of those five years, well, I mean, I had, I had spent, you know, when I started, I was broke living in Houston. And then I did that for a year and a half. I paid off my debt. Then I moved to Montana. I lived in Montana for six months and I like skied every day and just checked my internet ads at night. And then I moved to New York city. I lived in New York city for a year and lived in Tribeca and ate fancy food and felt more alone than I've ever been, even though I was surrounded by millions of people. Cause New York is that kind of place. And then I met a girl I moved out to you. And it's like, so cool. Once you free yourself. You just go where you, you could live in a van and make a million dollars a year. It's incredible, right? Yeah. And so, so I kind of had this, this, you know, kind of bohemian life. So I went out to Utah, I met a girl, went out to Utah, who's now my wife. That's now where I live. She had three kids. She was a single mom with three kids, fell in love with the whole package, the the wife and the kids, you know, ended up settling down and adopt. It took a few years because Utah's family laws are slow and they don't like, they're not too trusting of outsiders, but <laughs> took a few years. I was able to adopt the kids and now they're my kids. And then we added a fourth kid. And so anyway, I settled in Utah, 2011, 2012, started a digital agency. I basically said, okay, I know how to get customers. Who else wants to get customers? Oh, every business in the world wants to get customers. So maybe I could sell my customer acquisition services to businesses and ended up starting an agency. And from 2013 to 2018, uh, ran an agency called Zerly that did, you know, we actually had over 10,000 small and medium-sized business clients. We built a sales floor, got up to about 60 people, made the Inc. 5000 list twice, and, you know, did about a 30, a little over $30 million in revenue in those two years. And now I was a solo owner-operator bringing home, you know, 20 to 30% margins. So, like, yeah. Dude, I'm killing it. Like I'm good. And then I and then I sell the agency. 2018 I sold the list to a, a a software company had a a multiple seven figure exit and I was I was just like, "Holy crap, like I should just what do I do? What do I where do I go from here?" And it was either I either ride off into the sunset, never to be heard from again, or and and I was starting to see what was happening in the world, right? Like Gary Vee had been dripping on me for 10 years and there were some newer guys that were going into this influ, you know, you were one of them. I mean, like the world was starting to show me that there's an opportunity for someone with a message and a heart to serve to actually go out and do some real good. And there's a huge need for people because fundamentally, and I'll say this is and this is like my stump speech moment, and then I'll shut up so you can you can talk. You need not shut up. Well, I appreciate that. But we we have been educated for a world that no longer exists, and we now find ourselves living in a world. For which there is no formal education. And if somebody said, what is it that Jeff is trying to solve in the world? That is it. I am trying to put together formal education for the world that is and is becoming and is not does not have legacy dead man walking roots in a world that no longer exists and that is fast revealing itself. Through economic catastrophe,
1: it's so okay. So many things. I mean, number one, I was, <laughs> I had an update with the person who helped me with my finances, and I was looking in the accounts, and I've got five twenty nines for my kids, and they're you know growing over time. Uh, but I also find myself as I see those numbers wondering, are we actually going to need money for traditional college education by like Noah's five? You know, I don't know what college looks like. 15 12 13 Mm -hmm. years from now like it's impossible to to say because everything you just said is a thing that we've I mean I've had many a conversation about in the last five years because it's changed so dramatically the access to information the quality of the access of information and maybe your most important point the actual application of what's being taught online relative to some of what maybe is a more antiquated approach historically like it's all about relevance. I am curious though, like just to to go back to 11 times of failure to 12th time being the hit. Do you think there's something, because I mean, there's gotta be someone who's listening right now. Their business is struggling. They're starting to believe uh, maybe a story that they're not cut out for entrepreneurship or they're not cut out to have a business or lead a business. I'm sure there were doubts that come in the midst of 11 things not working, but do you think there's just something inside of you that naturally was like, I'm just going to keep getting back up? Was there, like, what what was the drive? Because if, you know, if you find yourself feeling stuck in failure or some stories around why the failure can be attributed to you, I'm curious if there's a hack that we can uh, afford people.
2: Well, I think I just, I have a really different, definition and and perspective on failure, I think than most people, you know, we live in a world like, like if this, if it had been like 19th century Russia, where if you, if you start a business and you end up with more debt than you can pay, they haul you to Siberia and they put you in a labor camp for seven years and you probably die. I might've had a different attitude. I might have been like, okay, I'm not going to take that risk 11 times on g- going insolvent, right? We don't live in that world. Nobody goes to debtors' prison. Like maybe they'll cancel your credit cards. Maybe, like, you know, maybe don't put your house up for collateral, but hell, even if they do, like they're subsidized housing. They're like, nobody rock bottom in America. Like the vast majority of human beings that have ever lived would love to be a rock bottom in 21st century America you know like I wasn't gonna die. I wasn't gonna starve it and, and and I frankly I didn't have kids. so but but honestly and I'll say this though, I do think I, I don't want to be as so reductive as to say, oh well it was easy because I didn't have kids because even since I've had kids, I have taken some sort of tightrope-esque risks where there was no net and I was and I did it and that was like because you just sort of develop this muscle of like it's gonna be okay. It really is. And and I think the fact, but if you think about what is it that most people are really wor- worried about in terms of they're afraid to fail in the modern world, I don't think most people are actually afraid that they're gonna end up dead or that they're even going to end up destitute because you can always just go get a, at least a menial job to pay some bills, right? They're actually afraid of losing status. They're afraid of being embarrassed. They're afraid of being ostracized. They're afraid of working so hard, you know, working, losing what they've worked so hard for, which is just a sunk cost fallacy applied to life. They're afraid of, you know, being judged or shamed. Uh, and, And it's like, I, I already did all that crap. I spent my whole life dealing with all that. I never fit in. I was always different. I was always judged. I always felt shame. I I'd already unpacked all that stuff and processed through it. So what did I really have to be afraid of? You know, and I think that's what it was. It's not that I overcame so much fear 11 different times or 12 different times. It's that I had actually redefined the meaning I attached to the per, the potential consequence of failure where it actually wasn't as hard for me as it is for other people.
1: I know you talk on mindset. I talk on mindset. Like there's something that is a prerequisite to even pursuing something like this and that's having the right mindset. I, I wonder if there were, was there a time when you did not yet totally possess this or were you always someone who was growth mindset, oh, sees yeah, failures there was. information? No, no.
2: So I spent from preschool to 16 years old wanting, I mean, this is, this is a hard thing to say, and I don't think I've ever said this. I don't know why I'm saying it now, but I spent from three to 16 with so much shame that as I as I started to develop the ability to have really strong opinions that I could cling to, you know, like when you're four, however passionate you feel about something, like 20 minutes later, you forgot, right? But when you're 14, you can really dig into to how you feel. Yeah, And as soon as I was old enough to dig into how I felt, I had a vein of hatred for my parents because I felt that they did, they had wronged me by having me. I was like, you knew that you had a genetic disorder. You knew that you, you had plump genes. So why did, why were you so cruel as to give birth to a pudgy, damaged child and force him to live in this world and I hated him for that for a while like that's how that's how dark it was and um and it, and, and I had amazing parents they were the most magical beautiful people I and mean, I don't put them on a pedestal they were flawed like everyone else but I had beautiful parents that now I, I, I hear myself say that and it actually hurts to say that but that was my that was how I processed my environment and my reality at, at certain times in my childhood. So so no, I was not always this go-getter of a person. I, w- I went into some dark holes. But when I was 16 years old, I, I went on this backpacking trip for the summer, like one of those outward, it wasn't outward bound, it was called Wilderness Ventures, but like one of those go out in the woods and find yourself adolescent experiential things, right? And uh, I had the most amazing experience being around a completely new set of people, And for whatever reason, it just played out differently than it had when I was at home in my life for the first 16 years. And they liked me. They thought I was funny. They thought I was interesting. I played the guitar and somebody had one and they wanted to hear me sing songs. And it was like, oh my gosh, if you change your environment, you can change your experience of life and you can literally, but I was a completely different person that summer than I had ever been prior. And when I went home, I was addicted. I was addicted to how it could feel to not be trying so hard to fit in, because when I had been on that trip, every I don't know. I, I think it's because it was a, a, you know, who gets sent on those kinds of trips, right? It's all the misfit kids. It's literally the kids that don't fit, that, the misfits, right? Yeah. And, and in a group of misfits, I was like right at home, and and so when I went home, I had this completely different perspective on what it means to be so different, where it was like suddenly something to lean into that's when I decided, hey, I'm going to run with this music thing. Screw this school. bit. I went to a school where they dressed us in uniforms, khaki pants, and white collared shirts. I remember going back to school to school. And at that point, I had been expelled. So it was like my friends going to school. And I'm like, you guys look like dorky little robots. I'm glad I got kicked out, you know, and I just everything changed that summer. And uh, ever since then, I've just been leaning into being different. And celebrating my weird, quirky, idiosyncratic existence and and trying to make the most of it and realizing that the more I do that, the more it becomes a superpower. And the more, honestly, the world starts to feel like a game that just gets easier and easier with more practice.
1: I know so much of what you did then next was inside of the digital space in this new digital marketplace. For someone who maybe doesn't really understand the seismic shifts in the emergence of internet and everything that it has created for solopreneurs, entrepreneurs. How do do you think about digital real estate? What do you, what do you think of uh, when you think of the way that we ought to be considering the opportunity that exists for anyone who has any talent and is interested in connecting to others with that?
2: So this is what I tell people. Like uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question through the lens that, probably reaches the, the widest segment of people out there, which is what should I do to make more money in the modern world? Like that's, I get that question 20 times a day on social media. Right. And some of them are like, Hey, I have, you know, $300,000 in my 401k and I don't know what to do. And some people are like, Hey, I live with my parents and I have, you know, I, I, I make minimum wage and I don't know what to do. And some people are like, Hey, I, my grandma died and I have 20 grand and I don't know what to do, but it's always the same. Like I have blank and I don't know what to do. So this is how I divide the world. If you have a hundred thousand dollars or more, eh, maybe it's more than that. Now, maybe it's a couple hundred thousand dollars or more. You can probably make a pretty good go for yourself in real estate, being like some sort of real estate, investor or developer, right? Like maybe you use it as a down payment to get a million dollar commercial loan, or maybe you buy use it to buy some rental houses and build, develop some Airbnbs. Like that's fine. If you have a couple hundred grand or more, I think, phys, I actually think the physical world has some amazing opportunities, right? Especially in the next few years based on what I think is coming, but that's a whole other conversation. But if you're in that tweener group where it's like, I'm not dead broke, but I don't, but I have enough money that I don't really feel financially confident. The digital world, like for a $12 domain and, you know, $100, $200 a month software subscription to a funnel builder and some courses you can go get from Entra or a host of other places, you can learn a skill set that allows you to go build any number of types of businesses you know, you can be in the knowledge business and sell what you know, which is effectively what I do, effectively what you do, right? You can become an influencer or a content creator. You can start an agency like I did. You can become a referral marketer like I did. You can, you know, become what I call, actually call a digital real estate developer, which is building properties that are optimized, like digital properties, not physical properties, right? That are optimized to, you know, in real estate, they say it's location, 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 right? Well, on the internet, You can actually create your own location based on how you build and optimize your digital property so that the location becomes first page of the Google search engine, right? Or first page of the YouTube search results. You can literally create, you can build not just the structure, but the location that the structure exists upon once you know how it works. And you can become a digital real estate developer. Now, is it some internet gimmicky, get rich quick thing? Like you see people talk about internet marketing? No, not at all. Like give yourself a few years and, uh, you know, maybe four or five figure a year development budget, five years from now, I, I can tell you how to be making seven figures plus in passive income. Like it's this opportunity is there for anyone, almost irregardless of the financial situation, unless they're so broke that they can't even afford a funnel builder. They can't even afford email software. They can't even and, and a lot of what Antra done is try to build Products that lower the barrier to entry. But I mean, there is a point where you're like, you shouldn't even be trying to build a business. But you should just be trying to get a job that pays better. And for those people, I say you gotta, you gotta figure out how to get into either sales, because nobody, nobody even cares if you have a high school diploma, if you can sell. Or if you're if you're like, no, I'm too introverted, I'm too shy, I have a speech impediment, I can't do sales. What okay, whatever limitation you want to apply to yourself, at least get into direct response marketing. Learn to write sales copy. Learn to do video editing, learn to build sales funnel. Like there's always a skill set you can learn, irregardless of what level you're at socioeconomically, that creates massive opportunity. And I think what's so cool about the digital economy is it invalidates the idea that it takes money to make money.
1: It takes time and some developed mastery. I mean, <laughs> you know, it does take work. Um, but other yes. than that, yeah, the bar is pretty low. The thing that I think I've probably run up against the most in my like pursuit in this digital economy has been some limiting beliefs around my ability to comprehend the intricacies of what you have, you know, especially in the agency world, what you were working on with search engine optimization or anything inside of funnel building. I I, like I've relied on other people. They've been great. But in some ways, not teaching myself to fish has made me, you know, still believe this thing that like, oh, man, it's just it's complicated technology. Uh, I assume that that's part of what Entree hopes to solve is the ability to reduce that that the bar of getting in. If you find yourself overwhelmed or confused on how you might pursue everything that exists for the taking for those that are willing to push past that fear.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is, and and I think there's a couple ways you do that. Um, one is you just build tool, you know tools that simplify the execution, right? Like we built some software that's called EntraSoft that allows you to send emails, send text messages, do CRM, you know, manage customer relationships, build funnels, and it just makes it a little bit easier than other solutions and it puts a little more under under the same umbrella, right? So that's one way. But I think the real way that you do it is if you look at, you know, the entire sort of nascent digital economy skill set, right? Which is like building funnels, maybe writing copy, although some would argue that AI is going to make that irrelevant anyways, unless you're really elite. Um, Doing, you know, content creation, making, doing video. I I believe that being on video, being comfortable doing like what you and I are doing right now is a a must have skill set. Like there's some stuff, but if you look at this world, like I think the things you need to do are pretty obvious, but the education on how to do them, is very very nebulous. It's very ill-formed. Like there's gurus out there that teach you how to do some of this stuff, but there's no Stanford of how to build a business on the internet, right? Like there's no level of of academic rigor and and, you know, pedagogical best practices and like like so like at Antra, we have like four PhDs on staff. And like we, our director of products and curriculum is somebody that just came over from uh, the sixth largest university system in the country, and she's been there for 25 years building curriculum, doing leadership curriculum design and leadership development. So like we're actually building curriculum that look if if MIT can teach people how to build a rocket ship, we can teach people how to build a sales funnel. Yeah. But nobody's, nobody's actually approached it with real academic rigor. It's just kind of been this like slapdash thing of like, oh, well, you know, Joe, the ecom guru did it and he he shot a nine video boot camp and I went through it and I should be able to do it too. Well, no, it, it's like, this is a real skill set. It takes more than that. But, you know, having, having competency evaluations, having... You know benchmarks and and achievement milestones and real organized and structured curriculum that and the other thing about the internet the internet has like done a number on people's brains and their expectations partly because it shortened our attention spans in general but partly because it's completely eroded the concept of delayed gratification it's like oh, oh yeah. everything happens so fast that I bought a course I need to have a result in thirty days well nobody shows up on their first day at Harvard and is like hey I better have a six figure job in thirty days or else this was a failure. You know, why don't you give yourself a year? Why don't you give yourself five years? We're willing to do that for school. We're willing to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to a school knowing it's going to take us an average of 21 years to pay back our student debt before we actually get to start keeping all the money we're earning. And and there's still a 95% statistical probability that we're never going to have enough saved up to comfortably retire. We sign up for that deal all day long, but we won't actually give an online program two years to see if it works.
1: Oh, come on. Come on. Uh could not agree more. There's uh, there's so much to be like deconstructed or challenged with conventional teaching and some of the paradigm that we've just fallen into as the way things are supposed to be or always are. Student debt is one of those crazy, crazy things. The idea of signing up for something to pay off for the next 20 years after you get out of school. See, oh, by the
2: way, it's only it's oh, that and taxes are the only two debts you can't bankrupt out of either.
1: Hopefully there's someone here that's had this thing beaten in their heart and they're looking for some sign to want to step toward starting a business, being brave enough to put themselves out there. And uh, you know, like I would say, yeah, you should do it and be prepared for seeing the failures that will inevitably guaranteed they're going to happen uh, as the gift of what this business of yours is meant to become. Uh, I'm curious what advice you might give to someone who feels like they ought to do it but are scared to try
2: again everybody's situation is different but assuming you're not in a place where you know i I think i actually just want to kind of like nip nip something in the butt if you're in a place where you're like hey i got 90 days to figure out how to pay my mortgage or else i'm gonna lose my house don't start a business yeah that's not that's not your answer (laughs) like that is that is not the hail mary you want to throw and so so that setting that aside, which unfortunately is so much of the, the predatory dynamic of the internet is this these ridiculous promises. But like if you're if you're somebody that has at least a, a reasonably stable foundation from which you're not just going, hey, how do I make a quick buck? But you're like, hey, how do I do a more fulfilling, do more fulfilling work with my life where I make the same or better money. And I do it in a way that I I enjoy or get more fulfillment from, right? Then here's what I would say: instead of starting a business or thinking of a business that is a like a like like we have this pass-fail mindset, like this very binary mindset that comes from education, right? Instead of thinking about your business as a pass-fail test, think about who can I passionately serve in the world. Based on something that I have some knowledge around and enough real life experience around that I have passion and conviction. Because that isn't something that it is like fundamentally impossible to fail at if you try. Like you can you can go online and serve and deliver value and help someone unless you're lying, unless you're intentionally misdirecting them. Like just go be a person value who wants to help and let the business grow organically from that because then there's no way to fail. There's, there is no fail, the term failure. So when you're in that business, there's no conceptual word or concept for, for failure. If you're just trying to serve people.
1: I have uh, a great uncle who was a music theory teacher, loves music, but like also loves the like nuts and bolts behind the music. And he's just, it he loves it. And We were hanging out not terribly long ago. And I was asking about like his biggest disappointment, like were there any regrets or bigger disappointments? And you know, he's, he's older, maybe 75, 80. And he started to get really emotional about this job that he had as a teacher that he ended up because of recession or cutbacks or something, the job was reduced and he was no longer needed. And it was years ago, but like, this is a thing like, it's just the thing that man life was the best when I was able to serve those students with this thing that I had the most passion for in the entire world. Yeah. So then I said, uh, do you have a YouTube account? And he said, no, what are you talking about? You know? And there, there is, I think something of a block for people of a certain generation that there's uh, a, a, an invitation for them to potentially jump into this digital commerce space and I just I said look I just want you to think about it because you still have a gift to give and you don't think that you have a classroom and in fact I promise you that you know even if you just helped one person with music theory it might be the thing that lights you up so I'm slowly slowly trying to uh, wear him down and have him be a a YouTube page creator and Mm -hmm. uh music theorist teacher once again we shall see there's something beautiful about that connection between experience and passion for sure
2: and that's a perfect example if if he did that how could he possibly fail like what would failure even look like in that right the only failure in that scenario is not doing it
1: yeah Got to to take that first step. So if someone is interested in Entra and is wanting to learn a little bit more about the kind of service that you provide, what's the like quick pitch for what problem you are hoping to solve? I think you've already said it. And how, if someone is interested, could they find out more?
2: So what I would invite someone to do is honestly just go to my YouTube channel. Of course, you're going to want to start with this wonderful interview I did with a gentleman named Dave Hollis. Come on posted on my YouTube channel. But uh, no, so I put all my podcast interviews up there. I have a ton of training videos on there. I've started doing a lot of YouTube shorts to just give people really quick, you know, bite-sized uh, tidbits. And, and from there, you can really get a sense, like I, like I actually have a, a general philosophy, and, and it's a hard philosophy to live, to execute t- entirely. But generally speaking, I, I don't really, I think information should be free or very easy to access. And that all the pieces that that it requires to actually help a person transform with information, that's what the investment should be invested in, right? Uh, Which is a big paradigm shift from school where school has historically been this gated, you know, environment of where the information is behind the paywall, right? And so I give away on my YouTube channel more than most, gurus or institutions or schools or whatever, at least I try to give away more than most people charge for. And you can go there and you can get a very real sense of what we're all about, what it is we're trying to do in the world, what kind of information we offer you, what kind of transformation we can offer you, and, and probably get a real sense of, hey, is this modern economy, entrepreneurship, is this something that I really would like to take on? And if it is, every single video on my YouTube channel is gonna have a link, that you can click takes you into download a free book, and go into a funnel and watch a video and buy a course, and you know you can choose your own adventure from there. But I would just start them at my YouTube channel, which is just Jeff Lerner Official on YouTube. So you mentioned the book. When is it coming out? What is it called? And
1: what do you hope that a reader takes away from it? Uh,
2: the book it comes out August second, and uh, I'm I I was thrilled and 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 really sort of like. Awestruck that an actual publisher of real books wanted to know what I had to say. It was pretty amazing, you know. I, was, I mean, three years ago, I was like, like, by the way, I am living proof that everything we're saying works. Because three and a half years ago, I was your was was that your father in law or I was the or the great uncle or something. I was yeah. the theory guy who was like, I don't know, should I start a YouTube channel? I'm kind of nervous. Like that was me three and a half years ago. Now I have a book deal. I have a top one hundred podcast. I have a you know nine figure company. I have a, I'm at an event of art. like this whole thing has exploded because I just finally stopped and I just did it. Book comes out August second. It's called Unlock Your Potential, and it's uh, it's basically three books in one. It's my autobiography of how I went from being a a broke jazz musician to you know a successful entrepreneur. It's a, it's a tactical guide on how to actually do a lot of the stuff we're talking about and take those initial steps to build something in the new economy. And it's also a, a pretty sort of high-level treatise on macroeconomics and really setting, I, I think, trying to trying to recalibrate people's understanding of what's going on in the world at a high level, frankly, to scare the shit out of them. Like, this is not option. I mean, I'm not saying you got to join Antra. I'm not saying you got to build a digital business. But it, there is no option for most people to not make some serious and radical shifts in their life, or else retirement is going to be what it was 300 years ago, which was non-existent. Like retirement's a relatively recent invention. It was invented in the late 19th century in Prussia. It was imported to the United States in the 20th century because it basically facilitates a lot of financial services and banking products that you know we can use to make money from people while they're working. And you know, most people never actually achieve it, but the bankers get rich. That's literally all retirement has been. But now that we're sold on it, if you actually wanna have one, you cannot rely on the system that they constructed a hundred years ago. There's like some new stuff you gotta do. And I I break down all the numbers and explain why that is.
1: Fascinating, so cool. I'm sure that it will be a gift to everyone who picks it up. August 2nd, is that what you said? August 2nd, yes sir, bookstores everywhere. 2nd, let's go. All right, uh, our last question, same question to every guest. What is the one idea, one quote, one comment to take away something that you think a listener today needs to hear that you want to impart on them
2: before we go? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go very, very sort of self-helpy in my answer, very personal development, not business, not tactical, although actually it's highly tactical, but in a different way. One of my favorite quotes is Mark Twain said, the two most important days in a person's life, I think he said a man's life, but we'll modernize it. The two most important days in a person's life are the day they're born and the day they figure out why. And that, that concept of that awakening to our own purpose, like why am I here really? And, and, and I think that if most people actually take an honest look at their lives, we tend to live our lives as if the purpose is to not die. And I think that's kind of lame, honestly. Like turtles live to not die. Armadillos live to not die. Can we as sentient evolved human beings find a little higher reason to live than just to not die? Because we're like, I got to have comfort. And I got to have security and I got to have a 401k and I got to make sure my kids don't die because when I die, they'll still be alive and they have my genes. And like, oh, that's like so boring and like Old Testament, right? Like, <laughs> like what is this higher purpose, this higher calling in service to humanity that? Maslow's tip of the hierarchy, right? Like how do we self actualize and go do something that matters in this world, right? And that's what Twain is talking about that second day. But the the challenge is in the absence of that, we live in a little bit of a of a perpetual existential crisis, right? Like what what is my what is the point when I have not yet discovered what the point is, right? So the way that you operate in the meantime. Like I promise you when you have your red pill moment and you know why you're on this earth, like, like I had three and a half years ago, you'll never, you'll never lack for motor. Like I haven't been, I got COVID twice. Other than that, I haven't been sick in three and a half years. I sleep five hours a night. I wake, I jump out of bed between two 30 and three 30 every morning on fire to go crush it because I have a freaking mission in this world. Right. And that's how you can live when you're on the other side of knowing your purpose. But until then, what are you supposed to do? And my answer to that is, it's basically Stoicism. It's like every day, it's, it's Stoicism, it's Buddhism, it's chopping water, it's carrying wood, it's all of the philosophies that are, that are grounded in a consistent daily practice. Because when you do that, you actually create the, the stillness and the space and the clearing in your life from which your purpose can emerge. And the best way I can describe it is, you make yourself the most interesting subject of study in your life. Mm. And you live every day as if it's a, it's a process of self-care and self-discovery. And most people going through life are like, I need, I need to figure out what my purpose is. Yeah, but you're not even paying attention to yourself. You're paying attention to your job or your employer or your family or your kids or this or that. But until you're the most important and interesting thing in your life, you're never going to discover why you're here. So this daily rigor of, and I call it the three Ps, physically, personally, and professionally living for consistent, never ending, improving excellence creates the stillness from which your purpose can emerge. And I actually believe that's the point. And when I wrote a book called Unlock Your Potential, and I started a podcast called Unlock Your Potential, what I'm really trying to do is empower and and educate people as to the method for creating the, the consistency in life where the results will be coming all along the way so that you can experience the happiness and the fulfillment that comes from progress, but ultimately so that you can reach that point of arrival where you have clarity on your purpose. And then at that point, you don't need another book. You don't need another podcast. You don't need another guru. You are the guru from that moment on. That's my advice. That is a
1: good word. Come on now, Jeff. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on your show back then. If uh, someone is interested in get to know you better, follow you on the old social. What are your handles? Where do you send people?
2: I am Jeff Learner official everywhere except for Twitter because it's too many characters for their you know rules or whatnot. Uh, but honestly, I really love when people find me on YouTube. I would say Instagram if you have goldfish or shorter attention span youtube if you have attention span greater than goldfish uh jeff lerner official on either platform (laughs) awesome thank you brother appreciate you
1: ladies and gentlemen hope you took something good away from this episode how could you not have if you do me a favor take a picture of this uh podcast playing on your phone put it up on the old social media tag me tag official jeff lerner and between now and next week I hope that you will keep on moving forward with some consistent action until your day of awakening when you know why you're here. We'll see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer.